Welcome to this IMO 2020 discussion organised by Lloyd's Register and Petrospot. It's now three years since the IMO announced the date for the introduction of the 0.5% global sulphur cap, and we're now just a few weeks away from the implementation deadline, the 1st of January 2020. Meeting that deadline has posed a huge challenge for all those involved in the marine fuel supply chain. And this discussion is very timely in that we're now really beginning to see how industry stakeholders are choosing to prepare for and comply with the sulphur cap. The new very low sulphur fuel oils are beginning to be commercially available. And as always happens when a significant industry change is mandated, a number of questions have arisen. These questions cover compliant fuel availability at global ports, the characteristics and behaviour of VLSFOs, and fuel compatibility, commingling and stability concerns. The continued use and availability of heavy sulphur fuel oil used in conjunction with exhaust gas cleaning systems has also polarised opinion in the industry. And there is also debate as to how port state control and flag states will enforce compliance with the sulphur cap and what the penalties for non-compliance might be. Sharing their insights on some of these issues today, we have Lars Robert Pedersen, Deputy Secretary General of BIMCO, Luca Volta, Marine Fuels Venture Manager with ExxonMobil, Naeem Javed, Global Operations Manager with Fobath, Christine Petrosian, Oil Market Analyst with the International Energy Agency, Mads Bjornby, Manager Bunker Services, TK Shipping, and Beth Bradley, Partner with Hill Dickinson. Welcome to you all. So to begin this discussion, I think it might be useful to kind of look back at the bigger picture and just remind ourselves of the scale of the IMO 20 challenge for the refining sector. Um, estimates for global total marine fuel consumption range from about 250 million to 300 million tonnes per year. And heavy fuel oil currently accounts for 75% of shipping's fuel consumption. Just after the IMO's decision on the sulphur cap in October 2016, it was said that compliance with the regulation would require a switch out of about 3 million barrels of HFO a day. And concerns were expressed whether refiners could actually meet the projected demand from shipping for compliant fuel in 2020. So I wonder, Christine, um, if you could perhaps give a brief overview of the fuel supply and demand situation back in October 2016, and perhaps then move forward a little bit and to see whether that situation has changed from where we're standing here uh, in October 2019, particularly perhaps with respect to the middle distillate pool. So back in October 2016, the situation was actually quite dire when looking at the supply and demand balances for compliant fuels. And at that point, um, middle distillates were supposed to take most of the brunt for the switch as the new compliant fuel oil-based material, the very low sulfur fuel oil, was, uh, I guess you could say, in infancy in terms of its specifics and characteristics. So um, the original idea was that the whole switch will be initially based on um, middle distillates. And back in October 2016, or, or indeed even early uh, months of 2017, when we published our first outlook after IMO's um, final decision uh, to implement a cap in um, starting from 2020, in March 2017, we saw a gap of almost 2 million barrels a day in terms of supply and demand for available fuel. So what the main issue with availability was the somewhat slower growth in uh, refining capacity additions, both in crude distillation and upgrading capacity, and also the crude demand, the crude supply growth itself, 
which um, back then uh, was projected at lower levels than what to do now. Just just to give an idea in terms of changes that happened since uh, since the 2016-2017, our uh, U.S. crude supply forecast for the year 2020 is higher by three million barrels a day compared to to these three years uh, ago levels, and for a lot of uh, analysts in the industry. Uh, the same would be true. Nobody thought that the U.S. shale would be growing so fast. And the significance uh, of the U.S. shale is uh, twofold for the implementation. One is that it's a low sulfur crude oil. It's a very low sulfur crude oil, so it helps to meet the requirements uh, for low sulfur products. And second, it has a lower residue yields, and it would work well for simpler refineries that are constrained by um, residual upgrading and desulfurization capacity over time. So over the last two years, the changes that we've seen is the growth in the quality of, in the volumes of the crude, which quality is better suited for in an IMO world for simpler refineries to run. And also we have seen um, somewhat lower demand projections for onshore diesel demand. Uh, which is lower now by about 800,000 barrels a day, which means we have more material available for bunkers. And we have uh, slightly higher growth in upgrading capacity for refiners. So overall, back in 2016, it was a much um, gloomier outlook than what we have now. Okay. Could you maybe explain a little bit more about the upgrading of refining capacity? I mean, back in 2016, I think, um, you know, it was generally noted that refiners wouldn't be able to make the changes required in that three-year period. Have we seen more investment and work in, say, um, hydrocrackers and cocas than we might have thought back in 2016? So I think there were a few um, projects that got accelerated after the IMO decision. Of course, projects are not really uh, complete, are not finalized within a three-year period. Uh, Usually they, they take years in the making. There were a couple of projects that were on the drawing boards at uh, at integrated oil companies or independent refiners, and I think they got a boost after the IMO decision. There are not so many of those projects. I think maybe if you you look hard, maybe we can find two or three. However, these are, you know, these big ticket um, projects, a hydrocracker or a coker that costs $1 billion. There are not so many of them that got really um, accepted, uh, finalized and built within this period or expected to come online within the next year or so. Most of the investments are invisible investments, really something that uh, the analysts probably do not see on a daily basis, uh, things that do not get um, announced or publicized as much. It is little incremental changes in the refining units, um, to the refining units, to the operations, segregation lines and so on that I think a lot of this has been going on that we cannot really quite quantify and put a name or a, or a price tag on those. But after the after the MOS decision in October 2016, a lot more people took it very seriously and they indeed um, did a lot of these um, invisible improvements to the refinery operations that are now helping. And we have seen it because in the, this year in particular, we have seen how fuel yields have declined in many major uh, refining countries to the extent that fuel oil cracks have been so volatile due to the lack of availability of high sulfur fuel oil as refineries have reduced the outputs of, um, of these products. 
And I wonder, before we move on, whether you could very briefly outline the options that there are to produce 0.5% sulphur fuel. Obviously, we have the, the low sulphur crews that don't require blending. But could you just quickly outline the other options, the other routes that refineries may go down? So in theory, you know, with the question of whether there is enough fuel available, enough compliance fuel available, whichever way you look, you could say there is enough fuel available in the volumes required by the bunker sector. The problem is that they're already locked in in some other applications. For example, the global diesel market is a 13 million barrels a day market. So you could say that, you know, the two or three million barrels a day required to switch, you can easily get it from the onshore diesel market if you beat up, if the ship owners beat up and outcompete the on-land um, diesel users. When it comes to low software, the very low software uh, residual fuel oil, again, we estimate that um, given the size of the very low software crude production, which is roughly 10 to 15 million barrels a day globally, and the rough uh, residual yields from this type of crude, we probably have about 3 million barrels a day of very low sulfur residual fuel oil in the refining system. But again, most of the time it's locked in to produce, to go into the operating unit and produce on spike gasoline, diesel, and so on. So some of these finds its way even now to the bunker market, probably around 600,000 barrels a day or so. But because the pricing is still not very attractive compared to diesel or gasoline, the rest of it goes into the diesel and gasoline pool. Uh, so next is the sulfurized uh, fuel oil, uh, which uh, the, again, the average fuel oil coming out of the refining sector has about 2 to 2.5% of sulfur, which means 80% um, of sulfur would need to be removed to make it uh, compliant with the new IMO standards. The sulfurization is not um, is not free. It is uh, rather expensive. It requires uh, hydro treatment units and it requires hydrogen to um, to complete the desulfurization process. Hydrogen can be produced from natural gas in some places. Natural gas is cheaper, such as the U.S. Gulf Coast or Russia. In some areas, it's uh, rather expensive uh, fuel. So again, it depends um, where we are for the production of uh, hydrogen for hydro treatment. The, the sulfurized fuel oil is a rather new phenomenon. Uh, again, previously it used to be desulfurized as a pretreatment for um, feedstock that goes into the upgrading units, uh, crackers or, or uh, cokers or hydrocrackers to produce diesel, gasoline and kerosene. Uh, so therefore it was economic even the price of these premium transport fuels. We have seen, however, a few projects in China, in the Middle East, of um, dedicated residual fuel desulfurization for the bunker market, as the prices for the 0.5% fuel are now, in fact, rather attractive to the, to the refiners. The next is to segregate various components, be it uh, straight-run residual fuel oil from the atmospheric distillation units, or feeds uh, such as VGO, vacuum gas oil, or products um, after the upgrading units, such as light cycle gas oil. So try to segregate all sorts of um, low sulfur compliant um, in terms of viscosity and other specifics and characteristics. Se segregate these streams and combine them in a bunker pool inside the refinery with some sort of refinery guaranteed quality and a stable standard. The last option would be 
um, outside the refinery gate, blenders, uh, bunker providers, essentially aggregating uh, various high sulfur and low sulfur components of where whatever they buy in the market, you know, sort of catch of the day and selling it to the bunkers market. So out of the four options in terms of stability and uh, acceptability, probably the, the straight run, the low sulfur fuel oil and um, the sulfur S fuel oil are, are the best as they would be the more stable. The blends, whether it's inside the refinery or outside the refinery, this is where probably a lot more work has to be done to ensure uh, stability and quality. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you for that very detailed overview. And Luca, I wonder if I can come on to you now. ExxonMobil has produced its EMF 0.5 range of very low sulfur fuel oils and is already supplying this in the ARA, Singapore, Thailand and in the MED. Uh, I think it began in early October. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder if you can perhaps explain the process that ExxonMobil went through in responding to 2020. I think you said before that the companies moved away from the manufacture of fuel to the formulation of fuel. And I wondered if you can explain what you mean by this a little more. Yeah, so a bit of history here. Um, from an ExxonMobil standpoint, as soon as we had 2015 and the change in ECA behind us, we decided to take a very conscious approach to what is now known as IMO 2020. But at that point in time, we didn't even know if it was IMO 2020 or 2025. But in order to be ready for us to have the fuels in the market that and the fuels that the market require, as well as being able as early as April 2017 to announce these fuels, um, it was a work that had to start at that point in time with that still level of uncertainty. So what we've done from an ExxonMobil standpoint is we've looked at each of the refineries that ExxonMobil owns around the world or partially own around the world and gone through a very surgical approach in terms of understanding not only the refinery configuration, but what type of streams were available at the refinery in isolation or in combination at the refinery or at our integrated circuit of refineries, streams that could have been conducive for the marine fuel market. That was only the start, because if the fuel has a low sulfur content, it does not mean that the fuel is suitable for the marine bunker market, because sulfur, I always say, is only the ticket to the game. But the next and the most important and the as important factor is that the fuel has to be fit for use. And fit for use involves a deeper understanding of the chemistry of the fuel, a deeper understanding of the physics and the properties of such fuels. So that's the reason why our mentality from a refiner standpoint, from a manufacturer standpoint, had to evolve and had to evolve into a process which is much more similar to the process that we use today when we formulate our lubricant. It's about understanding the science, understanding the chemistry. So this is what we've done over the years, and this enabled us to be the first one to announce the type of fuel we're going to have in the market, and not only do that, enable also us to look at the property of those fuels and through our technology and R&D, address not only the availability question that the industry was posing to us, but also the quality dimension and the quality dimension also in relation to compatibility. That's the reason why our branded EMF 0.5 range has enhanced compatibility characteristics that allow the fuels to be mixed together, commingled, 
at least in a 90-10, 10-90, so load on top or load on ROB, clearly providing that best practices in terms of onboard handling are uh, adhered to. So it's work that started years ago, and it's a work that is bearing its results as we speak today. The fuel is being bunkered. Uh, ship owners have already started using it, leading to the deadline, but having started the bunkering process because of their voyage, um, etc. That's downstream. Upstream, clearly, um, ExxonMobil has a long-term commitment to the transportation industry, of which marine is an important part, but it's not the sole part. And you've seen that the level of investment that we've done at a number of our refinery, whether it is Antwerp and the Coker, the Rotterdam Hydrocracker, the project we just announced um, last year in Singapore, some of the upgrading that recently we have announced at our Foley refinery, they're all multi-billion dollar of investment. They're done not just for the purpose of the marine industry, although the marine industry was an important consideration. So that, I hope, gives an understanding that the marine market is not just a matter of putting things together and playing bartender with different streams. It's a, a complex industry. It's an industry where science is important. It's more important today than it used to be, where chemistry is more important today than it used to be. And at the end of the day, all of these that I mentioned are important because they have a direct relationship with the total cost of operation for the ship owners. And ship owners run businesses. They don't run bunker procurement team. Thank you. So maybe we can perhaps now look at how ship owners and operators came to their IMO 2020 compliance decisions. Obviously, they can choose to use NGMDO, as it ever was. They can continue to use HFO in conjunction with exhaust cleaning equipment, and they can choose to use the new 0.5 fuels. So maybe we can consider a little bit what factors contributed to those decisions and whether those decisions have actually all been made or whether some people are still maybe sitting on the fence a little bit and waiting to see what will happen, you know, just in those few months after 2020. I wonder, Robert, what are your perspectives on this? Um, it's, it's certainly... Um... It's certainly a question how uh, our different members and different owners, they prepare themselves, how they make their decisions. One of the key elements is, of course, cost. And there is clearly a cost perspective in go for the, the blended fuels. But at the same time, there is also the cost element of the fuel compared to the cost element of the rest of the operations. And we see a trend that ships uh, which have relatively low consumption of fuel oil, uh, they are the, the sentiment to go for something that is uh, easy to handle, meaning distillate fuels, uh, where you avoid all the, the questions of uh, incompatibility, potential problems with commenting and stuff, where you avoid those uh, uh, issues. Ships uh, which have large consumption of fuel oil, it appears more to be the case. Uh, people go for compliant fuel, the uh, 0.5 blended fuel. Uh, and then we have, of course, uh, a subset of the industry who have decided to go down the uh, technology line, uh, install scrubbers, uh, and go for the standard fuel as we know it today. Betting, of course, at the same time on the continued availability of high-salt fuels uh, in the market. And that's, of course, uh, one of the the big questions uh, we have, which will only really surface after uh, January 2020, on how will the 
continued market evolve when it comes to supplying uh, high sulfur fuel oil for those who want the scrubber options. So, I mean, there, there are many different answers to the question, and we see a lot of uh, different uh, ways to go about it. I don't think we can say that there is a very clear path to choose. Um, it, it's very independent what people have done. Okay. And I wonder, Matt, if maybe you'd like to say a little bit about TK's decision-making process. And do you think some people, maybe the smaller owner-operators, are still thinking which way to go? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of different factors when coming to decide on how we would comply with the new regulations. Obviously, cost has been mentioned, and that's not just the cost of the fuels. It's the cost of looking at scrubber installations, uh, how much they cost, how you're going to finance that. Then also taking the time out of the ship into the yard, the loss of, of revenue um, if you, your ship is not operating in market when you're installing the scrubbers. On top of that, then you also have how your shipping company is operating. You know, you could have a, a small ferry company operating within the North Sea. We are a large tanker company operating spot globally. So we needed a flexible solution uh, for us. We also had to look at things like the um, age profile of our fleet, which, you know, is also a big factor when it comes to deciding how we're going to comply. Another factor, of course, is the environmental side of things and sustainability, which is a key value for us at TK. And we were very happy when uh, the IMO made the decision to move to 0.5 for 2020. There was originally discussion it could have been 2025. Um, as we've heard from Christine, the market does appear to be ready in the three years since the announcement was made. Okay. Naeem, did you want to say something? Yes. In our experience, the, everybody wants to actually comply with the 0.5% regulations, but because of the ambiguity and uncertainty on, on the quality of fuel, availability is one thing. On the quality of the fuel, we have owners, it, and it's very interesting to see that the owner size is not a deciding factor here. What we see, a large operator who is going to use all these different blends of fuels, and they are testing it proactively now, and then they will decide which fuel types or which you know suppliers are best suited for them or for the different profiles of their ships. At the same time, we have a big operator who is saying we don't want to risk any of these because our ships are, are in, you know, on long-term charters and we can't really stop and trial all these things. We'll build, we have uh, factored the additional cost in our budget for this year and we'll go for one to three, three months on purely gas oil. In the meantime, actually, you know, industry will learn and then they will adopt it to that. That's very quite interesting uh, situation when it comes to the, uh, to the owners, what they are opting to do it. So we have uh, gas oil in itself actually is a problem as well. On, on some of the thing, and that's why actually, but given the scenario and given the options available, uh, some are opting for the gas files. Mm -hmm. And they're not doing anything, not the intention that they don't, don't want to, but they don't want to be the one to learn <laughs> with the experience. Yes, they yeah. have to yeah. actually bank on the experience of the industry. Gas oil is a good option, but it's not a risk-free option. Because when you start mixing gas oil from different parts of the world, you might have issues associated with your cold flow properties. Not all ships are designed to run continuously on gas oil. So, yes, it's a simple approach. I know marine gas oil. I've been using that in the past. I may be um, sailing in an ECA. But, again, it's important to understand that there is understanding your choice, understanding the implications. It's important. That's absolutely. That's correct, actually. 
And this is what our actually, from Lloyd's Register perspective, what we are here, we advise them that, look, you know, there is ambiguity on the quality of the fuel on one side, and then there is uh, operational challenges when you go for the uh, gas oils. And normally, you know, we refer back to the 2015, the initial few months graph from the U.S. Coast Guard, there you see that the failures of the ship's propulsion due to gas oils, not quality of the gas oil, but the preparedness of the ships to use the gas oil from the extended period was a problem. So or uh, from our perspective, from the large register perspective, we are here to give them an impartial assessment that the risks involved with each of these uh, options, and then the decision will be, must, must be with the ship owners. I think it's also important to state that you know, whatever decisions have been made so far up to now doesn't mean that's going to be the same situation in two, three, four years. You know, just because a company hasn't invested in scrubbers today doesn't mean that they might order new builds of scrubbers fitted or retrofit later down the line if high sulfur proves to, you know, still be a major fuel within the, the total bunk industry. So it's not a holistic choice. It's an educated understanding of the business, the trade, the age profile mm. that has led to a number of decisions yeah. for now, but with an open eye on how things will evolve from a fuel standpoint, from a supply standpoint, from an availability standpoint, yeah. from a trade standpoint, from a fleet standpoint, mm. and those things may change over time. Yeah, and so many variables, and you could have two two tagger companies that look very similar on the outside, but could have made completely different decisions as to how to comply with the new regulations. Yes, and I suppose as well, it's also a question of um, also your fleet procurement decisions. You know, when are you going to choose a new build? You know, if it's 2022, 23, mm-hmm. maybe you're just going to hold fire a bit, see what's available in the market then, and, yeah. you know. Exactly. Yes. And just to echo the point that Maz has just made, when I was recently in Asia, um, I spoke to three companies, all with shipping companies within the same conglomerate, and they had three different strategies even though loosely under the same ownership. And I think one of the more interesting things from my perspective has been to see the owners really put a lot of time over the last 18 months, I would say, into thinking quite sensitively about the different challenges that they might have and and really where they're going to put their money, whether it's in terms of scrubbers or to invest in using the low sulfur fuel oil and also to see what goes on to develop. Okay. Actually, staying with you, Beth, if we look at sort of um, the commercial and contractual preparations for 2020, I think we've seen a lot of activity over the past year of people saying, you know, you must revisit charter party agreements, you must look at revisit terms and conditions, bunker supply contracts. And I just wondered, what are your clients asking of you? What are the questions, concerns they're expressing to you about 2020? Well, uh, from an owner's perspective, and insofar as they are seeking external legal advice. I think they have been receiving quite a lot of detailed advice from their clubs. Mm-hmm. It is to look at their charter in terms, particularly from the point of view of delays where uh, Port State Control, for example, goes on board and will, one must assume, be paying more attention to the paperwork that is being completed on board in order to do a first check on, on compliance levels. And so we've been looking at that and the kind of risk allocation between the owners and charterers of who is going to be liable, particularly to deal with fines for non-compliance and the risks of delay, because, of course, under a usual time charter, the owners do not have, other than contractually, uh, any real control over the bunker supply because that will have been handed under the time charter to the to the time charters themselves. 
I think most of that for most particularly large owners ought to have been ironed out largely in terms of their kind of general terms and conditions or, or what they're looking to insert into their time charters. But I do think there is likely to be quite a big question over how the quality of fuel to be supplied to the vessel is being expressed in the time charters. Because at the moment, there is no kind of easy way of specifying what it is that the time charters are obliged to supply to the vessel. And that, certainly from my point of view, I can see a number of disputes that easily arise in if the expression of the specification hasn't been done in a, in a way that dovetails neatly with the actual fuel that's being delivered and what the qualities of that fuel is going to be. So I think there'll be a diversion. Okay, there. There'll be a few grey areas in that. Almost area. <laughs> okay. And that's the reason why I always, when I talk to ship owners, I always say that ISO 8217 um, is the starting point, it's not the end point. And you've got to make sure you've got your specifying which ISO 2017 is the latest specification <laughs> and the latest specification offers the higher degree of protection. But I always encourage them, put your supplier under the magnifying glass, ask them what technology they have deployed. What type of additional testing have they done? When you're talking about combustion, for example, yeah. is CCAI sufficient? And uh, what they've done in terms of the stability of the fuel, how do they think about that? So, um, and we are a supplier of fuel and we welcome that type of questioning because we know what we've done. Do we know everything? Of course not. It would be stupid for me to say that we know everything, but it's put your supply under the magnifying glass and get that certainty on the quality because it affects your reliability as a ship owner to your own end costume. And equally, the owner, I think, or a ship owner, also finding out from their engine manufacturers, the manufacturers' details more specifically about the engines that are on board, rather than just relying, as, as we've all got used to, you put anything in, it's likely to be okay. But we know from the ECAs that certain low sulfur fuels and certain engines, and you know, that there can be all sorts of compatibility issues. So an owner will have to do a bit of work as well and advise their supplier what their engine characteristics are like. One of the things that, that often is, is forgotten in this discussion about fuel specification and contractual issues is really that MARPOL uh, Annex 6 Regulation 18 actually specifies the, to some degree the quality required of a fuel to be compliant. This is not just about compliance with the sulfur uh, requirement in Regulation 14. It's also compliance with the quality uh, as stipulated in 18.3. And as I said, this is often forgotten. Uh, and, and really, it doesn't matter what you specify uh, in your uh, charter contract, as long as you have a requirement there that the charter should supply uh, compliant fuel. Uh, it, it's actually quite a, a wide definition or a wide scope of, of that statement. And we should we should always remember that uh, non-compliant fuel or off-specification uh, fuel oil quite often is not only a commercial dispute, it's actually also a breach of statutory requirement for the ship to burn the fuel. And, and in that respect, it, it falls back on the charter to not having supplied the correct type of fuel. And I think this is one that, that needs to be emphasized uh, to a much higher degree in 2020 and beyond than we have seen in the past. Yeah, I fully agree with this. And uh, to be factual, actually, you know, this uh, this is uh, Sulphur 2020 regulations is an excellent opportunity for everybody to 
to look at the whole horizontal and vertical supply chain and see and get other stakeholders engaged. Because if you are as a ship owner or, or operator, this is the decision you cannot make on your own, even if you have uh, very deep pockets that you will comply with these regulations without even talking to or without engaging with the fuel suppliers because there is a lot of ambiguities and a lot of tick marks that need to be uh, considered. One thing from the, in the absence of any quality uh, criteria or uh, standard, I would not like uh, to say standard, but standard, that uh, <laughs> to, that as an owner, actually, they need to be more prescriptive. But the moment they go for more prescriptive bunker clauses, there is a uh, there is a pushback from the charters and from the suppliers as well. And this is the, our independent view from the when we see when we hear both the parties that it's uh, and that needs to be I think that resolved. Although as Lars Robert said, when you are referring to ISO 8217 or Marpol Annex 6, you should be adequately covered at least to run the ship smoothly without having any problem. That's the bottom line, yes. But we often see that this has been entangled down to the to the representative samples and the contractual obligation between buyer and seller. I think that needs a little bit more transparency. And this is an excellent, excellent opportunity for the stakeholders to actually come out with some sort of uh, transparency, uh, which gives uh, due assurance to the end user that your ship will be used, will be actually is run, and this is the given criteria, and provided you comply with these instructions, the ship will not stop. But I think that uh, to go to that point, we are still a little bit uh, <laughs> not there yet. Maybe uh, Luca has some different view, but... No, no, I don't, I don't, and... and uh... Again, uh, I echo your comment. Um, when people think about ISO 8217-2017, normally the mindset is, I'll look at table one, I'll look at table two, those 16 properties and I'm done. And I'm thinking, well, no, actually, ISO 8217-2017 has a number of additional uh, paragraphs to that and clauses and clause five, it's key. And for us in developing our fuels, the MF.5 range, we thought deeply about clause five and the fitness for purpose of that fuel. So that's the reason why, going back to the, to the sentence we were using before, put your supplier under the magnifying glass. Ask all those questions. No one in isolation can tackle IMO 2020. But with that ongoing discussion, collaboration, ship owners, fuel manufacturers, logistics providers, testing agencies, your legal support, that has to be a concerted effort because none of the stakeholders in isolation could have solved the IMO 2020 challenge. So, Matt, are you putting your suppliers under the microscope? You know, are you asking more questions of them? And what are those questions? Absolutely. And I think it's it's really important for us to know our supplier as well as the supplier knowing their counterparty, uh, which is usually what the, the focus tends to be on. We have uh, traditionally bought bunkers on the spot market. Um, we have uh, this year actually started contracts with some of our preferred suppliers. Um, so far, it's gone very well. With those contracts, obviously, we have a track record with the supplier. So we have a, a good idea of what we're going to get and the quality of service that we're going to get. One thing that we probably wouldn't do is contract with a supplier we've never used. That certainly wouldn't be, uh, be an ideal situation for us. But yes, there's all sorts of things to look at. And not just in the, in the buying side of things, but also when it comes to the actual delivery. 
I've seen in major ports some suppliers who don't use a continuous strip sampler, for example, and that could end you up in a real difficult situation if the sample, the official MARPOL sample you have, is not representative of the fuel you've got on board, because then basically legally you are pretty screwed in a way, and you'll have to deal with all the costs associated if you need to take that fuel off. So I think it's very important to know not just the sort of commercial aspect when it comes to actually deciding on who your supplier is, but how they actually make the supply and, and their um, rules, regulations and standards that they follow. And I want just before we kind of move on to, um, you know, fuel availability issues, obviously we had the experience of moving to the point one um, emission control areas back in 2015. A lot of talk in that kind of fun year up to that, people saying we just don't have the information. You know, the refiners aren't speaking to us, suppliers aren't speaking to us. Um, you know, we just don't have the information we need to make our decisions. I just wonder if you think lessons have been learned over 2020 and kind of what that information flow has been like amongst the various stakeholders in the run-up to 2020. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly say we've we've probably seen a little bit of, uh, in the run-up to 2020, so sort of after the announcement, um, a little bit of, um, how should I say it, sort of almost scare stories like we had back in, in 2013, 2014, before we went into the 0.1 echo zones. Would there be enough gas oil? All these sort of things. And I think there's been a little bit of that with 2020. But if we look from where we were, let's say, at the beginning of this year to where we are now, there's been an awful lot more information. And I think, you know, it's been difficult for the refining industry to come out and say definitively this is going to be ready on time because, you know, that's also made up of many different players. And the information has been trickling through. But I think once we got to, I would probably say, June, July, once contracts started being offered, we really did get a lot more clarity than uh, than we did at the beginning of the year. So I think it's been an improvement for sure. Although I have to say, and I don't agree with what you're saying, is that when we look at what is in the public domain, we continue to see announcement around the world in different ports that VLSFOs are going to be available. To me, when we're talking about transparency, one of the things that I hope it's done behind the scenes and maybe not in the public domain. It's discussed a bit more thoroughly about quality. Mm-hmm. What specification are these fuels? 2017, 2010, 2005 still. And our decision from an ExxonMobil standpoint has always been very simple. ISO 8217-2017 from as early as we announced in April. So I would welcome in that spirit of transparency bring this industry to the compliance level, which I always think about as a ticket to the game, not as the end position, to a higher level of transparency, so as that discussion can happen. I hope it happens behind the scenes. Yeah, I agree. Actually, you know, the the two things with respect to when we compare it with the 2015, the two things are distinct this time. One thing is what this was ambiguous. In 2015, there was no ambiguity. It was started and people have made up their mind. Second thing, and I think uh, without owning any ship, even still I feel that the IMO initiative to have a recommendation or issuing a guidelines to prepare a ship implementation plan was the really, really a good uh, step forward because that was also a guidelines that made people think that we need to at least go through it and see how we can avoid any risks. And that have alleviated a lot of risks which we normally had in 2015, like ship was going and just uh, lost the power. Now, 
I hope that if somebody has gone through those documents from IMO only, they will not uh, have those situations. And secondly, because in 2015, it was only impacting about 10, 15% of the total fuels because that was the ACA usage at that time. So people were not, all the shipping industry was involved in that. Now everybody's involved. And then we are talking about uh, 1 million barrel per day and there are already uh, uh, established uh, fuel supply chain of MGO. Then, and when we are talking about 4 million barrel per day and there is nothing in the market yet, it's a, it's a quite a difference. And that forced people to talk and to get engaged with the suppliers, not on the transactional basis, but more on the strategic level. Okay, we want to do that. And we have seen right from the queries, from the certificate of quality to actually shipping, uh, ships are doing the trials. And so far we have, what we do, based on what Lucas said, that not going on the, on the, on the, what is in the public domain and not going on the, on the announcements from the suppliers, what we did in large Register, we developed the large Register fuel finder. Then what we do, we only put the fuels which are tested by us, not, we are irrespective of what suppliers said, even Agile Mobile or whoever it is, we don't, we are just putting whatever is tested by us and we have provided all this you know, in our globally dispersed chart. And when you see at that, and you immediately can see the quality of the fuel, you can see the, the who is the supplier. And above all, actually when you, because the reason for putting that on the map is to provide the end users a tool where they can even do the white planning. Yes, yes. where they should bunker. So that, that kind of stuff, but from all data, actually, from uh, what we have tested, and I'm not talking about the quality at, at the moment, only availability, 32 countries, 80 ports, and 67 different suppliers. We have tested fuel from them. And in excess of 700 samples, which are available on the live data on the register uh, finder, it's, uh, it's uh, in my opinion, it's uh, a good tool, at least in the run-up to 2020 and the next one year. And it's only... Uh, includes the fuels which are tested by us, and, and then we compare it against the certificate of quality where we see a lot of surprises, but that's another issue. <laughs> and that database should grow because probably yes. you tested early batch, handmade batches or handmade fuels, and now you're getting the real commercial sample. So that should provide even more data point and develop the science yeah. on that. That's, yeah. And that's what we, when we comment on these things, we say, by the way, this was the best product. Just that's a very good decisions. point you make because the fuels that we're seeing now you know may not necessarily be available next year you know as you say it's very much a kind of uh, yeah. testing phase isn't it, it finding out it depends some of the fuels um maybe the one that continues to be produced if you are in the business of uh, uh, blending on opportunity in terms of the streams that are available maybe those streams that you have today for your formulation may be different in the first quarter or the second quarter next year. So that's the reason why I think that it's going to be a differentiation in terms of what you see in the market, what could be consistently produced product, what would be, call it more opportunistically produced. All of those meet the criteria of ensuring availability but then after that, there are all the things that we talked about, quality and all yeah. of that. And just one thing that when you talk about the consistent, when this is the specific area when or, or LR fuel finder looks at, you can 
take out the graph and you see from the same port, same supplier, several content started at 0.34 and now it is reaching 0.48. It shows you that there is some optimization going on sure. at the background mm -hmm. and same with respect to the viscosity is up and down and sometimes we see the same certificate of quality and totally different fuels. So it means that fuel supplier, as we said before, that transparency, that fuel supplier has, has not uh, nothing to do with a great deal of work with the fuel quality, yes? They are supplying fuel as received from their uh, supply chain. So that the kind of things which are highlighted in our tool, and that's important because we, we think that in order to ensure from world's perspective, the safety of the ships is very important from yeah. the LR's perspective. That's why our uh, fuel finder is available and it gives the all the main quality parameters at least where it is it is can affect the safety of the ship. Yeah. So I wonder if now if we can um, look at that fuel availability issue. Um, you know, it's something that we've heard talked about an awful lot. You know, there's not going to be fuel available in all the ports, which I think is probably we'd all agree, at least initially, is going to be is true. Obviously, the hub ports will have a range of compliant fuels. But what are people concerned about the sort of smaller, more niche ports where choices will have to be made, perhaps, about whether they continue to stock HSFO, whether they can stock both MGO and VLSFO? Um, Luca, what do you feel about that? I feel that uh, the time when fuel oil and marine gas oil were available in every quantity, in every port around the world, under whichever commercial construct uh, you wanted to negotiate, spot, term, whatever, it will be gone in 2020. So that's the reason why, in parallel to the different mindset that supplier of fuels had to go through from manufacturing to formulating, at the other end of this long value chain, ship owner will need to evolve their mindset from fuel procurement to fuel management. And fuel management, it's more complex. It involves every part of the organization within the ship owner from the CEO to the CFO to the COO, and then down in terms of who have to implement those decisions. And fuel management also involves understanding what you want for your ships and how you can achieve that. And it may not be in the same way that you achieve it now. You may be considering bunkering more in one port and less in another port as part of your voyage. So that's the reason why, as I said, when I look at the two bookend, from fuel production to fuel uh, formulation, from bunker procurement to bunker management. And those concepts are more difficult, more complex, but those are the, the minds that are required and are required today because we already are in implementation mode and will continue to be required in the future. Robert, I wonder if you have concerns about fuel availability or are you reassured? I, I think we've had um, concerns about fuel availability ever since IMO took the decision in, in 2016. And one of the issues that is there is really, you know, what type of fuel uh, is available in the individual port. And because ships will be on different strategies, as was just explained by Luke, they will have different requirements and they might not really be able to, to get what they think they, they can get. And here, actually, Marple and X6 is another important uh, aspect coming into play, because if you look through the, the regulation 18 uh, specifically, there are a lot of requirements about uh, information sharing amongst the various parties, ship owners, port states, fuel suppliers, flag states, with IMO, 
and really to make it very transparent to the entire industry, to the port states, to the flag states, the ship owners themselves. What is the supply situation around the world? What is the what is the picture of a supply of non-compliant fuel? Um, where is uh, where do we actually see a non-availability? Have anybody claimed non-availability in specific ports? So you are alerted upfront. And this is an important aspect that have not really yet been fully explored. I think um, these provisions have been there for more than ten years, but as I said, not really been explored. But I think it's something we need to take very seriously uh, moving into 2020, so we get a very good picture of the uh, situation in the different ports around the world. So we know in beforehand, we can plan in beforehand where. Do we want to buy? Where do we see a risk of uh, non-availability? Where where do we have a history of supplying non-compliant fuel and so forth? So yes, um, it's, it's a tricky issue. We we don't know before we are there. I think there are options to buy something that you are not planning to buy. Um, I mean, a, a ship which is out there trying to source blended fuel, compliant fuel could potentially uh, source distilled fuel uh, if that is available. Uh, a ship with a scrubber has every option available, basically. Of course, uh, expensive options. Uh, but yet again, if you're there in need, you could actually uh, get fuel, which is uh, at a higher spec than what you actually thought uh, you should have. The most important thing we've been advising our members is really that non-compliance it's really not a place where you want to put yourself, if at all possible, because the consequences of arriving at the next port in non-compliance can potentially be very draconian. And especially after the 1st of March deadline where, where the carriage ban come into place. One thing is to arrive in non-compliance. The other, the, the other question is, will you be allowed to depart again in non-compliance? Uh, and, and we think that might not necessarily be the case. And how do you... How do you get from non-compliance to compliance if you are uh, stocked up with non-compliant fuel? That is not an easy task to solve during a post day. So, um, yeah, availability is definitely an issue.